0: Hello and welcome to Beyond the Diagnosis, a show where we break down the barriers of medical science and simplify the complex jargon for your understanding. I am Dr. Viroshini Krishnan, a healthcare strategist, and with me, my co-host, Dr. Ashish Philip, an orthopedic surgeon. Today, we will be discussing about sleep, why we need it, how much does it affect us, and so much more. So Dr. Ashish, could you please welcome our guest?
1: Well, Dr. Viroshini, we have with us a very special guest, Dr. Manoj Suryanarayanan. Manoj had done his MD from Moscow Medical Academy and then his residency in internal medicine at the Brooklyn Hospital Center. He further went on to do his fellowship in sleep medicine at Detroit Medical Center, USA. He is currently working as a sleep medicine physician with a prestigious hospital out of Pennsylvania, USA. Dr. Manoj has over 10 years of experience in this field and has special interest in the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea and Cricadian rhythms. Thank you, Dr. Manoj, for joining us on Beyond the Diagnosis.
2: Hey, guys, it's really great to be here. I thank you for inviting me to speak here and share my um, educational background and training to give some awareness to the people so they can take better control of what's going on uh, with their sleep, which eventually will translate into a better quality of life and health for them.
0: Hi, Manoj. It's amazing to come together for this. I mean, if I think about it, it was over 20 years ago? was it over 20 years ago that we first met? It's so surreal for for all three of us to be here together discussing things that are very easily ignored. Something so simple, something so trivial like sleep. We take it for granted. It just fills my heart with so much pride to see that you're working on something so simple yet so profound, so overlooked and yet it impacts our quality of life. Manoj, maybe before we start, could you tell us a little bit about what is sleep. I mean, like, why are we struggling to understand what is sleep? Before we go into the, the whole technicalities of it, maybe tell us what is sleep? So
2: sleep, if you really get technical, it's, it's a period of relative quiescence. We are quietly resting, in a usually in a recumbent state that's for the human beings for for the homo sapiens if you will we we rest we recharge our body a lot of people think that there's really nothing happening but sleep can be an active process where there's a lot of physiologic changes happening there's a lot of memory consolidation that's taking place in sleep for children there's a great deal of growth and you know once again consolidation of what they learned during their Wakefulness that takes takes place during sleep. So, so it's a very essential process. If you if you think about it, we all spend anywhere from twenty five percent to a third of our life sleeping, depending upon how much sleep we all get. Right.
1: I don't know. As a doctor, I think I've slept only quarter of my life. I don't think I've slept a third of my life.
0: <laughs> I think I think if all three of us put our sleeping hours together, we would then hit what the average hits twenty five percent. Probably, <laughs> probably
2: that could be. That's usually the case in younger adolescents because we are faced with a lot of commitment we go through a lot of assignments homework that's very too applicable with high school kids young adults and adolescents who work long hours who have commitments to their family so at the end of the day if they can compromise on one thing it ends up being sleep which actually should be the other way you know they should be focusing on getting adequate sleep so that they they improve on their efficiency and performance during the day and they could probably get more done with for the same amount of time you get more bang for the buck when you're well rested
1: yeah i think that's a great point you made Manoj. but Contrary to what you're saying, I think the problem lies with most of us where we actually believe that uh, when we sleep, we're not doing much. We feel like it's absolutely a waste of uh, time, right, sleeping. So I think that's the basic problem. So if you could actually just break down to us, I mean, you, you did explain earlier on that, you know, there's a lot of things which are really happening, which is you've got like in children, a lot of growth happens during their sleep. For us as orthopedicians, we know that a lot of muscle healing happens during the sleep state. So if you can throw a little bit more light in it, that'd be great for people to understand that, you know, the sleep phase is not really something where you are just doing nothing.
2: Yeah. So to delve into that, I would really like to understand or or explain the different stages of sleep because that's what is closely tied or uh, intertwined with what's going on. You know, broadly, you could break sleep into two parts non rem or rem and rem sleep rem in lay terms non rem sleep it's a phase of uh, you know where your your mind is relatively quieter but the body and the muscles are not entirely quiet so you may be able to make movements changes in body positions and such in non rem sleep and rem sleep stands for rapid eye movement or or dream sleep so in in lay terms that's when we are dreaming it's during non rem sleep that we have, especially in the first part of the night when we have what we call the slow wave sleep is when you have a lot of growth hormone secretion and children need that. And even as adults, disturbances in that kind of sleep can lead to conditions like diabetes because, you know, growth hormone is closely tied to insulin uh, production and insulin-like growth factors and not going through those cycles adequately can lead to metabolic problems. When there's tons of studies which associate lack of adequate sleep to a pro-inflammatory state. So your body is as if in a state of inflammation when you haven't obtained adequate sleep, right? So you're more prone to getting infections. I have personally experienced that. I'm sure we all have gone through those phases where when you have not been well-rested for a stretch of time, it could be for a couple of weeks, it's a lot easier to catch a cold Whereas whenever you're rested, you feel like you're energized adequate and your, you know, your immunity is, is, is way better. So there's tons of studies out there which correlate lack of adequate sleep to a pro inflammatory or, or an, there's a, there's a heightened circulation of inflammatory markers in the body. Those are some basic concepts that are happening in uh, non REM sleep. In REM sleep or dream sleep, you know, there's all these neuronal synapses or connections. Think of these as micro batteries, which are constantly interacting and exchanging vital information among themselves. And whatever we learn, especially, you know, during our active years, especially during childhood, all that learning and resynthesizing and processing and absorbing that information, all that consolidation takes place in REM sleep. That's a state where your mind is really active, but your body is technically paralyzed because that's the way physiologically we are wired. You know, your muscles go into a state of paralysis. Otherwise, you would technically be in a situation where you could be acting out a dream. For instance, if you're running in dream, you don't really want to be getting up from sleep and start running. So it's amazing how, how the brain has programmed us to lay in a state of paralysis, muscular paralysis, but but your, your mind is really active and and processing all this information.
1: So, so, but how many stages are actually there? I mean, you've got the non-REM, REM, and then it goes in a cycle, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Great question, Ashish. You know, sleep uh, medicine is probably the one of the youngest specialties in medicine itself, because even from the time, even before the time that I started training, the non-REM sleep used to be classified into four sub-stages, you know, stage one, stage two, stage three, and stage four. But by the time I got into training, they they kind of clumped both stages three and four as one stage, stage three. Stage one, and I mean, for the, again, for the sake of simplicity, stage one is a very light stage of sleep, which is usually the transition. It's the bridge between being awake and getting into the deeper stages of sleep. Typically, we spend literally a couple of minutes and then we could easily transition into the deeper stages of sleep. Then you have stage two, which is somewhat deeper. And stage three is called the slow wave or delta sleep, which is when the great deal of all these, you know, hormonal physiologic, you know, growth hormone, all these processes physiologically take place. So those are the sub-stages of N are non-REM, and then you have REM. That's that's the other, the, the dream sleep. So those are the stages. Each sleep cycle lasts anywhere from 90 to 120 minutes. So think of us cycling through these different stages of NREM and REM sleep every 90 to 120 minutes. Believe it or not, we all go through, ideally uh, REM cycles three three to four times in a night. So we could be dreaming as many number of times, but we tend to remember the dream that probably was, that happened towards the time that we woke up or we are waking up.
1: So, we can wake up anytime between these cycles. It's normal to wake up, or do you notice that you wake up only during after an REM or an an REM? When do people normally wake up?
2: Great question. Uh, We could pretty much wake up anytime. These are called EEG arousals or arousals from sleep. Technically, these these are supposed to be brief arousals if they are physiologic, or they could be much longer in the context of an underlying sleep disorder. You could wake up, you know, uh, common symptoms maybe I, I wake up for no reason. I wake up much more frequently than I. I think I should be waking up or I wake up and then I find it hard to go back to sleep. I'm wide awake for 20, 30 minutes and and then I'm, I've am only been sleeping for two, three hours and I think I should be sleeping more, but I wake up and then I struggle to go back to sleep. So waking up could be brief. If, if it's really for a few seconds, you're kind of rolling over, changing your position, going, you know, sleeping from your back to the side or from your back to the stomach. Those Those are pretty normal. As long as you're able to get back and maintain sleep.
0: Got it. Manuch, that's very interesting. And this is going to be a good segue to this million dollar question I think we all had at, at the beginning of this podcast. What is optimal sleep? Is there a perfect definition of that? With Ashish and I averaging about four to five hours of sleep a night, does that make it pathological? Should we be sleeping seven to nine hours? what are we missing?
2: So there have been tons of studies conducted, right? Looking at hundreds of thousands of people. And there's a great study called the sleep heart health study, you know, that's that goes back into the 90s, I would think I think this is based on uh, based out of Wisconsin. But basically, the, the crux of it is that the magic number is anywhere between seven and eight and a half. Where each person falls is for us to figure out. If you wake up after seven hours of rest, you still feel like you are having to push to get your day going, then you're probably not a seven hour person. You may be more like an eight-hour person. But if you're if you're able to get seven hours of, of sleep, wake up and feel absolutely ready to go, that's that's a seven hour person there. But I would say that 95% of the world's population fall in the seven to eight and a half hour frame for op, for their optimal sleep. Studies also suggest that generally when people sleep for an extended length of time less than seven hours or probably possibly more than eight and a half hours. Again, this is, you have to take it with a grain of salt because each person is somewhat genetically different from each other. And so that leads to an increased propensity for heart and metabolic problems. So less than seven and more than eight and a half can be associated with health risks.
0: Manoj, this is interesting. You said 95% of the population of the world should get or do they get seven to eight and a half hours study? Because I, I thought the numbers would be significantly lower, given uh, our quality of life currently. Look at how much technology we have hooked up to us. We've got blue light. We've got work hours that are gruesome. We've got a pandemic going on. Therefore, uh, work-life integration is now, I would, I would say, very unhealthy in the sense that there's no boundaries at home. So, did I did I hear you correctly when you said ninety five percent of the population in the world? get seven to eight and a half hours of sleep.
2: Yes, Roshni, I believe I'm right. It's 95%. There is an exception. Uh, There's people who are genetically short sleepers, where as little as four hours are good enough for, for them. And then there are long sleepers too, people who need nine hours and more, sometimes even as much as 10 hours. They are called the hypersomniacs or excessively sleepy people. But again, it's not very commonly come across. Usually that's where being evaluated in a sleep disorder center can make a difference for such people. But the odds are that you're somewhere in the 95% group.
0: Ah, I, I think so. I maybe sleep about five hours a day and, and, and I think that's enough. But I, I do understand what you're saying because my trainer keeps asking me to hit seven hours minimum. Uh, he says it's very important for me to balance out my human growth hormones. And especially after we do a, a gruesome circuit in the gym, he, he expects me to get seven hours of sleep, nothing less. And, and And that's something he's a stickler about. But I'd like to come back to another point. Do you think you could share with us some of the observations you've had with the pandemic? What have you noticed? What studies have you been able to get your hands on? Or what have you been studying that you think would be an adverse impact on quality of life and sleep uh, going forward uh, in a post-pandemic world?
2: Yeah, so the first thing that comes to my mind is increased screen time during the pandemic. Obviously, we are bound to our homes. We haven't ventured out a whole lot children spending too much time in front of screens even adults spending a lot of time in front of screens there should be a, a ceiling there should be a time frame there should be ideally it shouldn't be during your sleep hours you really want to keep sleep hours for sleep and not for anything else you know it, it's funny when people say i get seven hours of sleep and then when you really discuss with them what their uh habits are they say oh I, I get in bed i either watch my favorite show for 30 minutes and then i i fall asleep or i you know i'm on the phone i'm i'm listening to some podcasts or or i'm listening to some music or youtube videos more often than not and they they lose 45 minutes of their time but yet they include that in their sleep hours so they're you know they're giving themselves about six hours of sleep opportunity but people generally tend to overestimate the amount of sleep that they're getting if you uh, pay attention.
1: So Dr. Manoj I just want to take you back to what you had said earlier on which is that the average uh, sleep which a person should be getting is roughly around seven to eight you know 95% of the people but one thing which I've noticed Per se within myself, you know, is that uh, when I was younger, probably I didn't need much sleep. I could work with five hours or four hours or even three hours was fine. But as I become older, I feel like I need seven hours. If not, my next day is is really bad. You know, I can't get go. So that's my question: is it is it relative to our age? Does you know how much sleep we get? Like as a youngster and as an elderly.
2: So great question, Ashish. I think. Sleep generally evolves over a person's lifespan. If you think about it, newborn babies, neonates sleep as much as 20 hours, and they need that. And as we transition into the first few years of our lives, we, we tend to range anywhere from 12 to 14 hours. Children may be allowed naps at their daycares and learning centers. Which is important for them. You know, children can get into coping problems because they don't have a way to express sleep deprivation. A lot of children become more hyperactive and get, uh, you know, more cranky. That that could be a way of uh, expression from, from these children about the fact that they are tired and they want to sleep. And then as we progress, we get down to, you know, more like the 10-hour sleep zone for the five to six-year range, more like nine hours as we get into being a, about 10 years of age. And once we get into puberty, adolescence, and young adulthood, that's when 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 we start transitioning into more the seven to eight and a half hours of, of sleep. Interestingly, as we age, as we get older, people tend to lose the ability to get into deeper stages of sleep. This is because Again, our brain is wired in such a way that we are more sensitive to subtle changes that are happening around us. Little things here and there tend to be a lot more disturbing. And in general, by the time we are 60, 70 years of age, you know, a lot of people have trouble getting past six, six and a half hours of sleep, which is which is fairly okay. You know, as long as when you wake up, you feel reasonably refreshed and you're ready to go that's that's fairly understandable that as we age now getting back to how you were able to get by with three, two, three hours of sleep again as the younger we are the more coping mechanisms our bodies is equipped with and as we age again we we tend to be more more cognizant of the gaps that that we have in our health so so getting those seven hours of sleep in the middle ages seven to eight hours is, is extremely important to cope
0: Wow,
1: that was really informative, Manoj. Thank you so much for at least, uh, you know, breaking down and making us understand the initial part of uh, a sleep cycle is and where the problems can lie and what type of different disorders we might go through. I think we really need to discuss further about uh, what are the different problems which we face during these cycles and how we can go about treating these problems also probably. So for this, let's take a small break and then see you on the other side. Every day, whether you're running taking a walk
0: traveling stuck in traffic or just doing nothing tune into the old couple podcast for great company every fortnight on your favorite podcast network a pandemia inc production Welcome back to Beyond the Diagnosis, not your typical medical podcast. Uh, Manoj, if I can just ask you, so besides being hyperactive, what are the different signs or what are are the ranges that we're looking at when people are severely sleep deprived or chronically sleep deprived? And how do you define chronic sleep deprivation? Like, how do I know I'm being sleep deprived and I'm not just a genetically light sleeper?
2: So... You know, common symptoms could be the first thing is you wake up, you need to push yourself, you really have a great deal of sleep inertia, you're barely able to get out of bed. That's the most common sign that you didn't sleep enough, or you slept enough, but it wasn't great quality sleep, which is what some of the sleep disorders are about. You could wake up with headaches, you could wake up with and and struggle with uh, fatigue. But here's the more common symptom, a lot of times people can get their day going, get their day started, but it's usually in the afternoon hours during a, a meeting or when they're when, when they're sitting and, and doing their work after lunch is when they experience a great deal of sleepiness and struggle to get over a couple to three hours of their afternoon into the evening hours. Sometimes people can say, I'm, I come home, I sit, I'm watching TV and I can barely stay awake. I doze off or those could be symptoms. In general, people can talk about brain fog and, and attention focusing abnormalities or dif- difficulties.
1: That's very interesting, Manoj, because, you know, I, I wanted to ask you that this- is it necessary for us to get seven hours of sleep together? Or is it okay if I get four hours of sleep at night, three hours in the afternoon? And I think earlier on, there used to be a period when people used to sleep by when the sun goes down at six they sleep till 12 they wake up from 12 to 3 they would do some personal work and then go back to sleep again you know so there used to be a cycle like that also so what's your take on that
2: interestingly in countries like Italy they still allow for siesta time the magic zone is somewhere 2 to 4 p.m time frame but again that ties to uh, the sleep process so if you if you let me take a moment to explain the sleep process it'll help us understand a little more about how you could sleep again you need to keep in mind that we go through sleep in different stages of sleep and cycles. So when you break the sleep portions into parts of, you know, four hours and, and three hours or five hours and two hours, you need to keep in mind that, uh, you know, the, the ability of your body, you're not giving the adequate opportunity for your body to go through the sleep cycles, which it would if you were to continue sleeping, right? And that continuity of sleep is way better than breaking it deliberately and, and, and taking different chunks of sleep, which a lot of people do, especially when they're doing shift work, uh, night shift people, you know, they come home, they sleep first for a few hours and then they wake up. They, they're awake for a length of time and then they catch a shorter nap before they go to work. If you ask them, you know, maybe they are a lot of them are able to cope with it, but a vast majority of them do struggle with energy levels and, and, you know, it tends to build up.
0: Yeah, I've never enjoyed those ships. Ashish, also, I think based on what Manoj just told us, you and I should be moving to Italy soon.
1: Yeah, I think so, <laughs> <laughs> Uh
0: Manoj, on that note, can I ask you, do we really recover from all these disruptions when we were interns, you know, when we had to do the graveyard shift, we worked for 36 hours nonstop, things like that. Do we ever recover from all of these disruptions or does our body cope? What, what, what really happens?
2: Yeah, we, we, we tend to cope. Again, the coping mechanisms differ by person, differ by age, but most of the time, sleep extension is what we call, that's the, that's the glorified term for sleeping more or sleeping in to cope for lost sleep, which is perfectly reasonable as long as you do not, it doesn't mess up your uh, ability to fall asleep on subsequent days. And again, let's get back to the sleep process itself, which, uh, which, which will help us understand. So sleep is driven by two important processes. One is, sleep pressure. In simple terms, the longer a person is awake, the greater the pressure to fall asleep. The other component that determines sleep is what we call timekeepers. The the most important timekeeper is light. We all, you know, Ashish mentioned, you know, we we are designed before the invention of light. We were designed to go to sleep at dusk wake up at dawn and then be awake during the day hunting, you know, raising families and taking care of cattle, whatever be the case. So, so really light is a timekeeper. And the other one is melatonin. So melatonin is a chemical which prepares your body to go to sleep. Usually, most people, the release of melatonin begins sometime after dusk. So usually in the modern world, I would say between seven and eight is when your brain starts making melatonin, giving signal to your body that it's, time to start preparing to go to sleep so light melatonin and sleep pressure these are the three determinants of sleep so regardless of you know your body could be making adequate melatonin but if you take a nap at 5 p.m for two hours there's no way you're going to be able to fall as- go back to bed at 10 and fall asleep right i mean it, it's going to be different
0: um on that note can i ask you a very quick question because this seems to be quite a popular one does melatonin supplementation work?
2: It does and it doesn't. (laughs) Clear as mud, right? Yeah, so melatonin, can be useful among people who who may be feeling wired after they come home after a long night's work and then they're trying to go to sleep but then they have exposed themselves to a lot of bright daylight and now that light confounds is telling a different information to their body saying it's time to be awake when they have already been awake for 12 hours or longer doing their night shift so during those circumstances melatonin can help certain people with circadian rhythms meaning you know, their internal biological clock lags behind a conventional sleep schedule so the rest of the world is going to bed at 10 but a person with a delayed circadian phase or a delayed internal clock is going to bed at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. and and they have done that for for all their life. So melatonin can play a role in helping them gradually advance their uh, sleep to a more conventional schedule. But in general, melatonin has been used to augment the quality of sleep among people with some degree of people who complain of my sleep is not that great quality. Uh, You know, I I feel okay, I feel like 70% okay, but or I I have like brief arousals, brief awakenings throughout the night, which I think are not really right, shouldn't be happening. So melatonin can overall help augment the quality of sleep. Uh, Again, it it could be a hit or miss thing. Some people respond better than others. The other challenge with melatonin is that it is not a well-regulated Supplement available in the market. There are a lot of additives. So, what concentration of melatonin is available in a formulation that you're taking may have a role to play in whether it's having an effect in improving the quality of your sleep or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Manoj, do you think this is a good time for us to talk about disorders? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into it.
2: Yep. Absolutely. I'd love to delve into it right away. So, sleep disorders. Again, for simple terms, you could uh, categorize them into broadly first one is insomnias people having who have difficulty getting to fall asleep or staying asleep or both Sleep related breathing disorders where you know people have you know snoring is a sleep- related breathing disorder but more commonly obstructive sleep apnea is the condition that's the most common uh, sleep disorder that is currently you know being treated I would say in Europe United States so sleep related breathing disorders is the second category sleep related movement disorders where you know people may have before they go to sleep you could have people Who experience a sensation of intense restlessness in their legs. They have this urge to move their legs or they have some people describe it as bugs crawling up their feet and they need to literally brush it off while there's really nothing. Uh, Or in worst case scenario, they may be compelled to get up and start walking around in their room for 15, 20 minutes before they're able to get over that urge or that sense of discomfort. And they can, they're able to fall asleep. It tends to eat into their sleep onset, you know, their, their ability to get into sleep. So already they've lost. 20 30 minutes of their sleep time because of of that urge so the th- that was a third category so sleep related movement disorders parasomnias which uh, mean basically sleep related abnormal behavior or atypical behavior that is happening in during sleep or related to the sleep period and finally uh, circadian rhythm disorders circadian rhythm disorders are Uh, related to your internal clock the biological clock you know most people say hey my biological clock is so well regulated at five o'clock I automatically wake up without even setting an alarm I've done this for for 20 years I've done this all my life you know you have a handful of patients who say that their their biological clock or their circadian rhythms are well regulated whereas there are others who may be night owls and then there are yet others who are who need to be asleep by dusk and they are up at like they are the morning larks
1: I think Manoj you you talked about a few of these um, sleep disorders and I'm sure that um, the information is overwhelming for each one of them, and we can really actually take them and break them down into, you know, individual topics and talk about it. So I don't want to go into it really very deep. But um, there's a few questions which I wanted to ask you, um, mainly related to um, two of them, which was one is uh, sleepwalking, and the other is sleep apnea. So i um, with sleepwalking, I think most of us are quite aware of it. We've watched enough movies, you know, we've kind of heard about this in in books, we read about it. So, you know, but one of the questions which is always asked, and which is, you know, the biggest question over there is, when somebody is sleepwalking, do we wake them or do we not wake them?
2: Yeah, very relevant question. So, so sleepwalking is a kind of parasomnia. It happens during non REM sleep. It's not a f- time when we are dreaming or REM sleep. Remember I said when we are dreaming our body is in a state of paralysis so we are not normally wired in such a way that we'll move or act out our dream. So a person who's sleepwalking is really not dreaming. Technically it's happening in during slow wave sleep. It is usually a disorder of childhood getting into adolescence and a lot of people, the vast majority of those people outgrow sleepwalking. If it continues into their adulthood that could be a pathology really there's not a, a targeted treatment for this condition except you want to make sure you know that there are certain kinds of seizures which happen during sleep seizure epilepsy during sleep and sleepwalking can be a symptom of epilepsy in sleep purely isolated to sleep so uh, an evaluation from a neurologist may be may be warranted if someone is doing it pretty much on a consistent basis we call it stereotypy or frequently you see the same pattern of repetitive behavior so that could be a sign of seizures but short of that it's a fairly benign condition where someone may be getting up and, and walking in sleep the only little things that you can do for for those people is to prevent self-injury so you want to make sure their room is clear of objects their pathway their walkway to the bathroom or whatever to the doors are clear so literally it's about behavior changes and uh, changing their sleep environment making it safe for themselves and for the rest. But really, there's no need to wake them up. If you wake them up, they have no recollection of it. Most of the time, things happening during slow wave sleep, people have no recollection of.
1: What happens if I wake them?
2: You know, they may act confused or they may they may really not be aware of how they got there. Most of the time, that's about it. You know, sometimes little children may may break into tears, they may cry, they may have a little difficulty getting back to
1: sleep. But no permanent damage, right? It's not like they're going to...
2: I don't, yeah, it's not going to cause any neurologic damage or anything. I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think there's any information supporting that. Do it, you want to do it safely so that you're not startling them and you're kind of easing them back into sleep. That's that's really, that's all that you have to do, yeah.
0: Manoj, on that note, could I just check with you, is there a mental health element to the onset of these two situations to any sort of parasomnia is there a trauma that, that precedes it is there is there something that we're not catching on what do you think
2: absolutely yeah great question uh, roshni i think so during childhood there could be traumatic incidents by the way that connects me to bedwetting. so usually little children say four years old five-year-old children who are already trained bladder trained may have regression when they have a younger sibling that's been associated with, so that that's a condition. But then it, it, it tends to resolve. So a four-year-old boy now has a baby sister or a baby brother for some reason begins to lose control of their bladder. They just need reassurance. They I don't think they need to be disciplined. I don't think parents need to be hard on them. Childhood trauma uh, can lead to a different kind of parasomnia. It's called nightmares. Nightmares are happening during REM sleep, not during non-REM sleep. I have uh, taken care of a lot of uh, veterans who have been in. Uh, Iraq, who have been in uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, combat situations, Uh, they wake up with uh, pretty bad flashbacks. People who have been, people who have gone through a traumatic adulthood, people who go through a lot of depression, abuse, emotional, physical, any kind of thing, they can have these kind of uh, events. In general, sleep deprivation, those stages can be associated with some degree of parasomnia, sleepwalking and and such.
1: Superb, Uh, Manoj, thank you. Thank you so much for throwing some light on that. But what about the sleep apnea part? I mean, we've seen this in movies where they got like a a CPAP, machine on their face. And w- what's the deal with sleep app?
2: <laughs> that's really funny. The latest uh, update that I hear about CPAP being used in movies is uh, the most recent Spider-Man movie. I, I, I was told that the bad guy there was wearing a CPAP uh, on some uh, sleep uh, physician forums. I've heard how it's funny that the uh, or the bad guy is actually using an older version of mask, CPAP mask, that's not even being made. It's been discontinued anymore. And Marvel couldn't Offered one of the recent masks, <laughs> which was a funny thing. But but anyway, getting to obstructive sleep apnea, it's a kind of sleep disorder which comes under the broad category of sleep-related breathing disorder. Uh, sleep apnea is a condition where there's an instability in breathing. So a person commonly says they're snoring, or people hear, uh, they're usually their bed partner hears them. You know, they say, "Oh, this guy snores like a freight train." This this guy snores as if he could take the roof off. Or sometimes, you know, the bed partner can observe a person who's who has the condition to be choking or gasping for air uh, they may be making weird gurgling noises in in sleep sometimes you know uh, when someone is observing they could go for several seconds without taking a breath you know it seems as if they're not breathing and and you know a lot of times bed partners need to shake or end up shaking them or nudging them to to wake them up and so that they start breathing so these are the common symptoms of obs- observed symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea which can translate to a lot of daytime symptoms. Uh, If you think about it in simple terms, what's happening is when the person with obstructive sleep apnea is is transitioning into sleep, their upper airway collapses and closes on itself for several seconds, which is tied to a somewhat natural underlying tendency. All of us have more collapsible airways. There's a lot of airway instability as we go from being awake to uh, being asleep. But generally in the people who have obstructive sleep apnea, they have certain risk factors. They are either overweight, they have a narrow upper airway, a large, relatively large, tongue or they have a crowded really lot of soft tissue inside their upper airway which tends to fall back which re- uh, regresses into their upper airway and causes obstruction so the person may be making an effort to breathe but there's no flow of air because there there's an obstruction to the flow of air as a, as a consequence there's a disturbance in oxygenation which usually lags behind by about 10 seconds after the obstruction takes place and the brain perceives that there's a disturbance in in the way this person is breathing. So in order to restore their normal breathing, it causes a gentle awakening or arousal from deep sleep to lighter stages of sleep. And when that happens, the airway opens up again. So the airway which is stuck together is now open again, and the person starts breathing again, only for as long as the obstruction takes place once again. And and this process keeps happening repeatedly throughout the night, which is what determines the severity of the condition. But in simple terms, it's an airway obstruction which needs to be overcome. What CPAP does is it pushes air with pressure, and that pressured air works like a splint or an airway stent, you know, overcoming that obstruction and and, and restoring normal flow of air and normal breathing during sleep.
1: But Manoj, you were talking about partners observing the problem and seeing that okay, the person's not breathing or shallow breathing. But what does the person perceive? Is his next day, like, what does he feel? Is it the sleep is not great? Or is it just that he never gets into a deep sleep, so he never dreams? So what are the symptoms which are perceived by the patient? The
2: the symptoms are pretty broad. They could go anywhere from... The person just waking up feeling poorly rested. They feel like, oh, I I spent seven hours in bed. I feel like I I got run over by a truck. I barely slept. They may wake up with headaches because there's a lot of muscle tension from constant snoring in the upper airway. They fight through tiredness during the day. Focusing problems, difficulty with, uh, you know, concentrating and, and absorbing material. A lot of times drivers, you know, it's usually when they're driving is when they, they feel they're hit with, with, with sleepiness. So most likely it is these are the same symptoms of extreme sleep disruption or the person has absolutely no control. There's any moment they sit down, they can fall asleep.
0: Manoj, I just wanted to check with you. I mean, this may be a controversial question, but it, it's a question that I need to ask. Do surgeries to help correct floppy airways or collapsing airways do they actually help with sleep apnea or are we over correcting are we being very quick as opposed to doing something more conservative with the treatment modalities like lose weight exercises for the jaws you know what i mean sleeping positions are we very quick to you know cut and fix and stuff like that
2: that's an awesome question Uh, surgeries for obstructive sleep apnea are becoming obsolete especially in the adult population More so the population, the pediatric population will immensely benefit from removal of tonsils and adenoids. That's the only surgery that has been shown to be of any benefit. And that's restrict limited to the pediatric population with documented enlarged tonsils and adenoids. Short of that, surgery is not being offered as a first line of treatment for most. For 99% of the adults with obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Weight loss, positional therapy, you know, sleeping more on the sides, limiting alcohol intake close to bedtime because alcohol can have an effect on your airway being more floppy, collapsible and positive airway pressure is, you know, these are the most commonly prescribed methods of treatment. More recently, there's another method called hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Again, it is, it is restricted to a very select group of patients but you're absolutely right more often than not resort to conservative methods interestingly studies show that the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea ranges anywhere from 30% to 60 or even 65% 70% some some studies show high prevalence if you think about it simply stating every other person probably has obstructive sleep apnea right and you know population studies also seem to indicate that there is a greater prevalence of obesity in general i view that correlation of increasing prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea with increasing the obesity prevalence. That's one of the risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea.
0: Thank you, Manuch. But before we end or before we wrap up today's very, very informative podcast, there were a couple of questions that came up from some of our listeners. The first one being, do variables actually reflect my real quality of sleep or is that just a rough guideline? The second one is, um, how far off sleep timing should I work out? What will happen to me if I work out too close to, you know, um, the time that I actually go to bed? Uh, Why am I having trouble actually falling asleep after I have a heavy workout session at night? Uh, So these are the two main questions that have come up. Can you sort of help our listeners um, answer these questions?
2: Sure. For the first question, technology, wearable devices, your uh, smartwatches, iPhones, any kind of smartphone that has applications that can track your sleep, take them with a grain of salt because it is hard to actually test them and validate them. None of, I mean, I would say barring a couple of these devices, which are actually used in the world of sleep medicine to diagnose people with sleep disorders. There's a brand called Watchpat, and then there's a couple of other brands that are out there, which have been formally tested compared with actual sleep studies in the lab to validate their reliability. Short of these few devices, which which are really a handful, you can literally count them on with the fingers on one hand. The vast majority of technology devices, wearables out there have not been validated necessarily, So you'd want to take the information tracked by these devices with a grain of salt. You can use them as a rough guideline to track, you know, as a reminder. If it's, if it says that you were in bed for only five hours, that's true. You were in bed for only five hours. That's a reminder that maybe the following morning you wake up and you're, you don't feel that well rested. It's a reminder to yourself. So so a lot of these technologies, uh, I would view them, look at them as a, as a supplement to the gaps that we don't pay attention to. So, so I hope that answers your question, Roshi. I don't think I would, if a device says that you only had 10 minutes of REM sleep, I would take that necessarily as the gospel truth because, you know, if you, you know, you also, you also have the subjective perception. If you wake up feeling that you rested well, but the technology shows that you had crappy sleep, I would absolutely not take that, you know, as a valid point. So you, you, you supplement anything with, Your subjective analysis and and validate that to some extent you use that as a guideline to track your sleep habits, try to make them more regular and be aware of the gaps that you could improve on. Getting to the exercise part, exercise, as we all know, leads to release of adrenaline. Adrenaline is a counterproductive hormone to sleep. You know, there are hormones which are considered to be wake promoting. So they promote a state of being more awake or alert. And, you know, adrenaline is a fight or flight hormone chemical that triggers the flight or fight or flight response. So you really don't want to do an intense workout for an hour and then try to go to bed because there's still a lot of circulating adrenaline in your body, which is not going to be able to let you relax, settle down. So it's going to be a lot more challenging for you to go to sleep. So timing of when you exercise, when you work out, the intensity of exercise, all that matters. If you're just walking around at a gentle pace after a heavy meal, an hour or two before you go to bed, probably wouldn't make a big difference. If you're going out for an intense cardio or weightlifting for, you know, 20-30 minutes and then, or or running on a treadmill for 30 minutes and then, you know, literally within the hour you're trying to go, go to bed, it's going to make it very challenging. So you want to give yourself at least four to six hours of break from an intense session of workout for the adrenaline to be washed out and for you to be able to go to sleep. By the way, timed exercise is one of the factors for improving sleep hygiene. So at any point in the day if you're able to incorporate provided you give adequate gap between your sleep time and the exercise incorporating an exercise schedule in your in your daily routine is extremely conducive to sleep it's it's one of those things that's recommended in the habits of improving sleep hygiene for insomniacs for people who have trouble getting to fall asleep try to incorporate exercise uh, but but make sure you have enough gap between the time you work out and the time you go to bed.
0: Uh, Manu, I have two very pressing questions, which I think all of us want to understand. Do you have any advice for us to hack sleep? How do you get great sleep? Or would you just like to talk about sleep hygiene? Which way would you like to position it? So
2: generally, you want to keep your sleep hours as consistent as possible. Try to avoid variability. The more trouble you have getting to fall asleep and staying asleep, that person should Try to be more consistent with with their with their sleep hours. It, it wouldn't be that that much relevant in someone who can fall asleep at the drop of a hat. You have those lucky folks who can fall asleep at the drop of a hat, so they it, this probably wouldn't matter too much to them. But in general, the first and foremost is to keep your sleep hours fairly consistent. Don't give a lot of variability on the weekends or your days off, because one thing that people tend to do is they sleep in for two three hours. I mean, there's a wide variability between weekdays and weekends of you know the wake time can be can can have a gap of three to five hours which is which is really bad so you want to keep it as consistent as possible try to avoid taking naps during the day especially if you're someone who's sensitive and if you really do need to nap keep it at a time so that you have at least eight hours from the time of napping to the time that you go back to bed keep the nap short, preferably 20, 30 minutes and less. By the time you're getting into the 20, 30 minute zone, you're already getting into the part of slow wave sleep because if you go back and recap the, the sleep cycle process, every 90 minutes we cycle through different stages. By the time you hit the 20 minute mark, the odds of getting into slow wave sleep or deep sleep is pretty high and people can wake up from a nap feeling groggier than before then when they went to take that nap. So keep the nap really short and keep it at least eight hours before your actual sleep time at night. Keep your sleep room really conducive to sleep. So really, it should be dark for night shift workers. Ideally, you want to use dark room darkening blinds if, if they're sleeping during the day.
0: Black up. Yeah.
2: Black up uh, but, um, you know, in general, keeping the room nice and dark. If uh, some people have difficulty getting to fall asleep, if it's too quiet, they can use white noise, a source of white noise, a fan, uh, a standing fan or a ceiling fan is a good source of white noise. Uh, you know, they can use something like that. Try to avoid too much caffeine before you go to bed. Ideally, you know, you want to give at least six hours because caffeine not only has a stimulating effect. as we know it has, it's a diuretic, you know, it can make people pee a lot. So you may wake up too many times through the night to use the restroom Uh, that can eat up your sleep time and be be disruptive to sleep. Similarly, limit the intake of alcohol before you go to bed and try to incorporate a an exercise regimen. Try to take a warm bath. A warm shower will actually is is extremely conducive to sleep. And, uh, you know, um, in the rare event, you need to take a supplement. You know, melatonin is a good sleep supplement. Try to avoid any of the -the over-the-counter Benadryl and things like that, because that can leave residual carryover grogginess and such during the day. I would say those are generally good practices to follow.
0: Got it. Manoj, you know, sounds like all the so-called punishments we had as children really would help us as adults to maintain really good sleep hygiene, like, you know, a warm shower before you go to bed, really dark room, no screen time, limited TV hours. I mean, these were our childhood punishments, weren't they? So yeah, I I get it. I get it. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, probably there was a meaning. It's just that we were never explained the meaning or the reasoning behind the rationale behind all these. Yeah. Great point, Roshni.
0: All right. Um, Thank you. And uh, Ashish, I'll hand it back to you wow
1: thank you so much Manoj for coming on this show and making things so relatable to uh, what we've been going through in most of our lives and we in the healthcare profession are quite well known to you know to have these kind of problems and these kind of issues so thank you so much for throwing some light which might probably help us a lot as we go through as usual we had a great show thank you Roshan for co-hosting the show with me thanks again Manoj for coming on the show
2: thank you guys for having me it's been a pleasure being here and I appreciate you opportunity to share whatever i know to enlighten people and make them more aware if, if it makes a little difference to their daily lives and, and improving their quality of sleep i i think i would take that as a as a success
1: sure you can you can find manoj's uh, link in bio in our description so if you want to throw over some questions to him you could probably do that please continue to follow us like us and subscribe to the show uh, all our link and descriptions are down below and until next time take care Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone.